Quick news segment. Um, while we do this, go ahead and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. Um, for our news segment today, I'm going to be talking about Isabella Chow. Now, some of you have been following this story on Facebook. Um, it's a, I, I think it's becoming a big deal. So, recently at UC Berkeley, the student government passed a bill supporting transgender rights. Now, the resolution was entirely symbolic, um, but a Christian senator, student senator at UC Berkeley, um, she abstained from voting. She didn't vote no, she just abstained. And um, she read a five-paragraph statement explaining her decision. She told her 18 fellow senators who all voted for the bill that discrimination is, quote, never, never okay. She condemned bullies and bigots. She said she abhorred stereotypes. And she called the LGBTQ plus community valid and loved. Quote, that said, Chow continued, voting for the bill would compromise her values and force her to promote groups and identities that she disagreed with. As a Christian, she said, I personally do believe that certain acts and lifestyles conflict with what is good, right, and true. I believe that God created male and female at the beginning of time and designed sex for marriage between one man and one woman. For me to love another person does not mean that I silently concur when at the bottom of my heart, I do not believe that your choices are right or the best for you as an individual. Consequently, over 1,000 people have now signed a petition calling for Chow to be removed from the student senate. The campus newspaper has condemned her editorially and refused to publish a self-defense um, that she wanted them to publish. Within hours, Chow's political party, Student Action, cut ties with her. So did Cal TV and her publication's constituents. A Daily Cal editorial called her statements offensive and declared, quote, UC Berkeley students cannot allow and accept leaders like Chow to make decisions on their behalf. The paper also rebuffed Chow's attempts to further explain her views in its pages. In her rejection letter, opinion editor Cheyenne Hendricks said the paper wouldn't run Chow's comments because her submission reflected her earlier statements, which, quote, utilized rhetoric that is homophobic and transphobic by the Daily Cow standard. Chow, a junior majoring in business administration and music, said she feels frustrated and sad that Berkeley students are forced to live in a bubble and we have to protect ourselves from anything that a vocal population deems to be offensive. Okay, I think this is an issue that is live for us. Um, Isabella Chow is a student at my old church at the Ark, which I helped plan in 2006, and she is a, a Christian on that campus. Now, I understand that this is a touchy, controversial subject, okay? But this is the thing. She is standing up for her personal convictions. She did not vote no. She made clear that she loves those who would self-identify as lesbian or gay or bisexual, but that she cannot in good conscience vote for this resolution because that would be an affirmation um, that is contradictory to what she personally believes. And for this, she is getting um, attacked like crazy. Um, the newspapers in the area have gone after her. She has received many threats. She has protesters following her around, all this kind of crazy stuff. This is the state of American universities, especially in California, in 2018. I think that we have an obligation to stand with her in this hour. I think we have an obligation. When I heard about this story, immediately my heart was provoked, um, and I wrote a Facebook comment uh, post, and a number of people have... Um, you know, done similarly, and I, and I appreciate that. I just feel right now that there is a window of opportunity for the body of Christ to stand together and say, look, Isabel Child does not stand alone. 
right? This is not like a tiny fringe of people. Essentially what's happened is the Daily Cow, which is the student newspaper at Berkeley, has essentially condemned all conservative religious people, the homophobe, Christians, Jews, Muslims, that all of these are essentially homophobe bigots. And I, I think it is especially galling because the Daily Cow is a publication that has publicly defended groups like Antifa, which is a modern terrorist organization. So I am pretty upset about this. I think it's not right, and I think it's right for the Christians to rise and say, look, we stand with her. Now, I spent some time on the phone. I called some pastors up in the Berkeley area. I called my former disciple who leads an organization called Unity in Christ in the city of Berkeley. And um, here's the thing. There is a real threat of persecution for those adults who would stand with her. Basically, if you are an adult living in the Bay Area and you publicly affirm what Senator Chow said, there's a good chance that you can get fired or persecuted at work. It is a live issue, and this is very real in the thoughts of a lot of these leaders. So right now, there's a lot of division and confusion over what exactly should be done. I'm asking that if you are a leader on your campus, meaning you are in leadership at a campus fellowship, or you're in leadership at a house of prayer on your campus, I would ask that you come and meet with me after service for five minutes to talk together about what potentially we could do to show some kind of solidarity. What I suggested to some of the pastors up in Berkeley is that we write a statement of affirmation with her comments and basically condemn all of the persecution that's coming against her. Now, I would like to do more than that. One of our students um, had, got, had a sense that God was leading him to do some sort of public defense and affirmation for her also. So we want to talk about that a little bit because I do feel like there's a window of opportunity and I will not have it be said that a student is braver than the pastors of a church. Jesus Christ, let that not be the case, okay? Right now, she, look, she is bearing some persecution. She might get kicked out of the Senate if they get really treacherous, right? She might get a bunch of people yelling at her, you know, for some odd months, okay? But this is, this is small beans, okay? This is small beans. If we can't take this kind of persecution, then there's no way that we're going to be able to take the type of persecution that is to come, okay? As we're studying the book of Daniel... Daniel is a prototype for us. He is an example given to us of what it looks like for a person of great faith to stand with faith in a hostile culture. Okay, as we're going through the book of Daniel, I want us to keep this in mind because this is a live issue. And as we progress in American society, if a revival tarries, meaning if we don't have a revival in the next couple months or years, it may get to the point where many of us will face opportunities for serious persecution if we are going to publicly stand with what the scriptures say. So I challenge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you must form your convictions now. Don't wait for the day of persecution. That's how you fail the test. You've got to wrestle with these issues now. You've got to study the scriptures now. Because Jesus says this, if anyone is ashamed of my words, I will be ashamed of them before my father. This is a warning to us. That when we are persecuted for our faith, are we going to stand and show that we fear God more than man? Or are we going to surrender to the spirit of intimidation that is actively at work in our culture and that is growing? Christians, I'm challenging you. Get your convictions now. Get your convictions now. You cannot afford to be agnostic on these issues. 
You cannot afford to be ignorant and say, I don't have a stance. I don't know what's true. You have a window of opportunity. Use it right now. We have many great books. There's a fantastic book in our library that we, we purchased these books for you. Okay? A great one on this issue is called Can You Be Gay and Christian by Michael Brown. I highly recommend that you check out that book if you have questions about what does the Bible say about some of these issues of homosexuality or gender identity or things like that. There are a number of resources online. You are welcome to personally message me if you would like me to point you to good resources. But there are tons of resources out there. It's up to us to learn what the scriptures actually say. Now, I would like to say that I have studied this issue extensively. I think I have pretty much heard most of the arguments on either side of this issue. And my mind's made up. I challenge you to make up your mind. Have you read, have you reached chapter 5 of Daniel? Okay, now it's been a little while since we've been, been in the book of Daniel. So I want to do a quick review of chapter 4. Here's the review. King Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. There it is, right? He looks at his kingdom and he goes, wow, what an amazing king I am. Look at what my hand has wrought. And a voice from heaven rebukes the heck out of him, strikes him, and he goes nutso. And he becomes an insane person eating grass, you know, and, he, and then his sanity is restored to him. And he recognizes that the God of heaven is sovereign over all affairs, that all authority has been given to him from heaven. And a jolt of humility strikes his heart. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the greatest king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He ruled for something around 42 years or something like that. Today, as we pick up in chapter 5, what I'm going to do is rather than read the entire chapter, I'm just going to summarize the first half here. Okay? So here's where we are. After King Nebuchadnezzar, we have a succession of a number of kings who rule for just a couple years. Okay? Two, three years, we have a number of kings. And finally... We have a king named King Belshazzar. Now, it's likely that at this point where chapter 5 picks up, the city of Babylon is under siege. Okay, the, the Medes and the Persians are the rising power in this part of the world. And they have probably surrounded the city of Babylon at this point. And, they, and the Babylonians are in a type of trouble, but King Belshazzar feels fairly confident that his defenses are going to be able to hold up. I don't think he's in danger for his life, or he feels like he's in danger for his life. So what he does is he throws a big party for all of his nobles. Maybe the idea is that he's going to comfort them and be like, we're okay, everything's okay. But he makes a big mistake, and the mistake is that he orders that the silver and the gold vessels from the temple in Jerusalem be brought in for them to use. And what he does is they bring in the treasures, the goblets, all these types of things from the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar conquered, and they drink and they praise other gods. They praise other gods as they're drinking from the holy vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. At that point, something downright freaky happens. A hand comes out of nowhere and starts to write on the wall. And it writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. You know what that means? 
Belshazzar didn't. He had no idea what the heck that meant, but he was terrified. So he calls for his astrologers, his enchanters, his magicians, and he says this, if anybody can tell me what this means, I will make them the third ruler in the kingdom. I will give them wealth and power if anyone can do it. So they all come in. They try to read this. They have no idea what it means. No one knows what it means. But then the queen comes, and the queen says, don't be afraid. There is a person named Daniel who is a... Worker of mysteries. I forget the exact title she uses. But she basically says, Daniel knows what's up. And if we bring Daniel in, he will know exactly what this means. So picking up in verse 17 here, Daniel reads the inscription, and this is what he says. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the God, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride... He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Okay. What we have going on here is we have a change of kingdoms. Okay, for those of you who have studied world history, and come on, all you guys studied world history in 10th grade, right? You vaguely remember some of this stuff. Neo-Assyrian Empire, Neo-Babylonian Empire, right? Then the Persian Empire, you guys watched the movie 300, yeah. right? Where the Persian emperor Xerxes, right, goes to fight against the city-states in, um, in Greece, right? This was all part of this time period. These are the greatest empires of their time, and Daniel finds himself in the midst of it. Oh, Christian, aren't you in a similar position? Part of the greatest empire in the history of the world, you find yourself at a turning point in history, just like Daniel. Here we are. Now, I want to say a couple things about this to give us some understanding. First of all, for many, many hundreds of years, it was thought 
that this was a historical error. You see, there's many ancient records that talk about Nabonidus, who was the last king of Babylon. In fact, biblical scholars in the 19th century pointed to these verses as saying this is clear proof that the Bible is wrong and misinformed about history. That was until 1854. In 1854, the cylinders of Nabonidus were discovered, which recorded how Nabonidus empowered his son, his oldest son, Belshazzar, to rule, be his co-regent ruler um, at the end of his reign. Now, the cylinders of Nabonidus now reside in a museum in Britain, but they show that the Bible was actually correct, and the history of that time period up until that point was wrong. I say this. There's a lot of places in the Bible that people will say are wrong and in error. But the truth is that our history is often in error. Okay? Let me give you guys a hint as a, someone who has studied history fairly extensively. History is written usually by one dude who took the time to write down the way he saw things. Okay? When we get to the age to come... I am certain that we are going to find that a lot of what we have believed throughout history is probably in error. The problem is we don't know, right? We don't exactly know. If you're a historian, this is what you do. You take what this person said, you take what this person said, and you argue, right, about who you think is probably right and what they were was probably motivating them. And you know what's popular in, in historical studies today is you just make up whole new reasons why they were all wrong, right? This is like we are living in the age of revisionist history now where everybody is making up new history, and I hate it. I just want to say this. It is so important that we have God-fearing historians. It is so important. Look, if you don't know this, history has largely been, you know, purged Every conservative historian at, uh, at top-tier universities has essentially been purged from the departments, okay? I listened to an interview um, a couple of years ago about a professor who is, um, I believe, this was a little while ago. I think he was a professor at Harvard for, for many, many years, and he was more of a conservative professor, but essentially he said that when he started his tenure, um, the history department was pretty diverse. There were a lot of different types of historians. People came from different perspectives, but over his time, over time, Essentially, all the non-progressive, super-liberal historians got purged from the department, and now he can't even get a job teaching anywhere, right? He's now at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, um, but they won't let him teach any his history classes there because history, as you're getting it now, is come from one side and one perspective. Like I say all the time, there's, is much, it's much more about indoctrination and brainwashing than it really is about trying to give you multiple sides of the story and let you make up your own mind. That is not how education works anymore, which is why I'm constantly challenging many of you guys with what you're learning at your universities. And I'm like, well, you need to study the other side of the story. And they're like, what? What do you mean the other side of the story? But I tell them really easily, it's in our ways, another side of the story. The problem is you can get the liberal perspective really easily. It's in our news media. It's in our universities. It's very difficult to get to the other side of the story. you got to go looking for it. So I lovingly challenge you to do that. Yes. Now, we asked last week, does God expect non-believers to obey him? I think this chapter touches on this issue. And the answer is yes, to a degree. 
Yes, to a degree. More specifically, here's the principle. All of us are responsible to our revelation. All of us are responsible to our revelation. So in this chapter of Daniel, a harsh judgment comes against Belshazzar. Why? Because Belshazzar should have known better. He saw the testimony of what happened to his, his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this, meaning all that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. We see another example of this in the book of Jonah. For those of you who are more familiar with that book, the prophet Jonah is sent to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which was essentially taken over by the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Now, the problem with the Assyrians is the Assyrians were evil people, okay? These people were famous for their butchery. They were famous for torturing others. They were some nasty people. And Jonah, understandably, did not want to go and preach there. Why? Because he was sent by God to warn them that if they did not repent, they would be judged. And if you know the story of, of Jonah, Jonah is like, all right, God, I hear you. And he goes in the opposite direction. And for those of you who know the story, he gets eaten by a big fish, sits in the belly of the fish until he goes, fine, God, I'll surrender and submit to you. And he gets out of there, and he goes to Nineveh. He preaches to the city, and the whole city repents. He must have been the most anointed preacher of all time, Jonah. Amazingly, the entire city repents. And what happens is God does not judge them. Now, if you read at the end of Jonah, Jonah is pretty upset about this. Right? Because he really wanted Nineveh to get judged. He really wanted that. And so he's bitter. And he's sitting there outside of Nineveh. And he's mad at God because God didn't judge the most evil empire that he had ever seen. Okay? And God tells this to Jonah. He says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh and from their left? And 20,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And also many animals. What's God saying there? He's saying, look, these people, they don't know right from wrong. They don't know. They don't have the same revelation of right and wrong that you have. You take it for granted. You know right from wrong. But these people, they don't know. And because of that, I cannot judge them as strictly as you want me to judge them. Am I making sense? This is the principle all people on earth are responsible to their level of revelation. So what does it mean, brothers and sisters, when we live in perhaps the most prosperous, most moral nation, perhaps, in the history of the world? What does it mean when we commit evil and sin? I think it's swifter judgment. A lot of people say, you know, a lot of bad stuff goes on in the other parts of the world, and that's absolutely true. But I say this, America should know better. America should know better. Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, he was responsible to the revelation of his ancestor. So I say to us today, are we not responsible to the revelation of our ancestors? Are we not responsible to the revelation of Jonathan Edwards? Of Charles Finney? Are we not responsible for the revelation of Martin Luther King Jr.? 
Are we responsible to the revelation? And I would say, yes, we are responsible for the revelation, which is why we have to fight for the inheritance that we've been given. We have to fight to defend the revelation that has been given to us. In the same way that Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was responsible to the revelation that had been given to Nebuchadnezzar church, we are also responsible. This is so important. Look, so many churches have disavowed responsibility. We just say, look, we just throw it all on the cross. Every sin taken care of by the cross. Wrong. Wrong. I don't like that theology. No, not every sin is taken care of by the cross. Or let me put it to you like this. How can it be then that Jesus says, if you forgive those who have sinned against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive those who sin against you, then neither are your sins forgiven. How the heck can that be true if the cross is taking care of all of our sin? I, I say this, look, there's a lot of bad theology out there. I challenge you to study the scriptures yourself and see if what I'm going to tell you is true. When we believe in Christ, when we put our faith in him, we absolutely get forgiven of sins. We get forgiven of the great sin of rebellion against God and self-righteousness. That's the sin that leads to death and judgment. Meaning that having faith in Christ gives us the ability and the gift of eternal life. Now that's not a small gift, brothers and sisters. That's a big gift. But now my question is, does that mean that if you sin against your brother or your sister, don't worry, that sin has already been forgiven. I hate that theology, okay? No, it does not mean that. Okay, if you sin against your brother or sister and you do not repent of that sin, that sin is on your record. That sin will count against you in the judgment. Does that mean that you lose your salvation? No, no. But it does mean that we have a responsibility to repent for our sins. Hear me, there's a lot of bad theology out there that just says, no, you don't have to focus on repentance. It's all good. No, let me say this, brothers and sisters. Even if you believe in Christ, meaning this, what you are sowing for your unrepentant sin in your life. Meaning this, why is so much of the New Testament telling you to repent of your sins if they've all been forgiven through the cross? Seems kind of redundant. The answer is that, yes, you still have to repent of your sin. Yes, the cross was given to us to make a way for the Holy Spirit to come dwell inside of us so that we can live a holy life. Some people are like, no, 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 no. The cross means that we don't have to live a holy life. We're all good. And I say that for those people, their judgment is deserved. No, Scripture says that we have been given grace. Why? Because now the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, convicting us of sin and righteousness, showing us the way, leading us into all truth. The Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can live a holy life. Let me put it to you another way. If you consider yourself a Christian, but you continue to practice sin, who is fooling whom? Because scripture says clearly that no Christian continues to practice sin. It's in 1 John or 2 John, something like that. 
First John, amen. No Christian continues to practice sin. Why? You can't bear it. Your spirit is convicted. It's a sign that you ought, that you do have the Holy Spirit alive inside of you. Put another way, you know, my favorite chapter of scripture, Hebrews chapter 3. <laughs> See to it that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that becomes hardened by sin's deceit, right? There's a reason why we have to repent. Don't have this mentality, oh, sinning, but it's okay, God's merciful, everything's going to be okay. No, no, no. You're sinning, repent of your sin, get back in right relationship with Jesus. Okay, I'm not saying that every time you sin, you lose your salvation. Not what I'm saying. Okay, I am saying that when we resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit and refuse to repent, what happens is our hearts start to harden against the conviction of the Lord. And if we continue to go down that path, our hearts will harden and harden and harden and then, yes, we will find ourselves cut off from the vine of Christ. Just as Jesus warns us in John chapter 15, if my words abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If my words do not abide in you, every branch in me that does not abide gets cut off and thrown into the fire. Brothers and sisters, I say this to you not so that you will live in terror that you will fall away from the only ping pong. Not a good way to live. Some people, they only ping pong between the two extremes, right? God loves me no matter what I do. It is impossible for me to disappoint him. He's always proud of every little thing that I do, right? Or God is going to send me to hell right now. And we just ping pong between these two extremes, okay? No, the truth is in the middle, okay? The truth is in the middle. Then if we are to remain in Christ, then his words must remain in us, and we must obey his commands. If we stumble, praise God, we have a great intercessor. We have a great mediator of our faith. We have somebody who's fighting for us in heaven. We have someone, we have a blood that we can appeal to for forgiveness of sins. But if we persist in our sin, we absolutely will be separated from Christ. And I say that that's a serious danger because church, we are living in an age where if you compare yourselves to all the Christians around you, you can feel pretty good about yourself while you're a million miles away from being intimate with the Holy Spirit. We're living in an age where our fellowships are more about fellowship than about the kingdom of God. And let me be blunt. Fellowship is a code word for having fun. That's not biblical fellowship. We have to make a distinction between fellowship and real fellowship. Fellowship where we go and, you know, have fun together. Look, anyone can do that. Non-Christians love to do that. Okay? They want to come to our bowling tournaments. Okay? They would love to hang out with us playing airsoft. I ain't saying this stuff is evil. I'm just saying this is not kingdom. This is the stuff that we do for fun that's wonderful. But look, if all we do is fellowship and we never do the kingdom, what kind of Christian are you? Can I be blunt? How 
can we say that we have died to ourselves and we now live for Christ when the only Christian stuff that we do is go to the fun activities? You're not living for Christ. You're just lonely and need some friends. And guess what? As soon as you find a friend who will like you and that you can have fun with that's not a Christian, boop, you're gone. Now hear me, I'm not trying to condemn fun. I like having fun. Okay, one of my mottos is play hard, pray hard. That's a good motto. Okay? Ain't nothing wrong with playing hard. I love some good hard play. Man, I had a great time. I shot like six people in one game yesterday. Mmm, so fun. But I am saying if that's the only thing that I did, if that was my Christian life, then I'm deceiving myself. That's not a Christian life. That's a life that anybody can have. No, a Christian life is one where I'm in fellowship. How is that? Real fellowship, real friendship, real intimacy, real relationship. How is Daniel different from all the Jews that were around him? They all had the same revelation of God. They knew who he was. They knew what his commands were. But only Daniel, or at least Daniel is the prime example given to us, was a person who obeyed the commands even when it cost him something. Even when it was difficult. Even when he faced persecution and hardship. Let me put it to you another way. If your faith cannot withstand persecution, how much faith do you really have? I say this challengingly to the church in America. Because right now, we have a Christian tradition. But where's the substance? Where the heck is the substance? Meaning this, people want God and they come to church and if all they have is a nice, nice ethics lesson, look, you can get that in a lot of places. Where's the power of God? Where's the testimonies of miracles? Where's the testimonies of transformed lives? Church, this is our responsibility. I say this. It's your job to bring the kingdom to your campuses. How are you doing on that? I say this in, in humility. I tried for many years to bring the kingdom to Berkeley. I ain't saying this is easy. But I am saying that we have to embrace the responsibility given to us by heaven. What does it mean? What does it mean? After this, after this service, I'm having a baptism class. Preview, those of you who are going to be in the baptism class. What does it mean to be baptized? It means that I have been crucified. The old life is gone. It's dead. It's buried. Let us cast off the sin that so easily entangles. I, look, I tell people straight if video games are causing you to stumble, cut them out. If people are causing you to stumble, old friendships, cut them out. If your internet's causing you to stumble, cut it out. That's what I'm like, huh? I can't live without internet. Oh, yes, you can. Great heroes of faith.
this addiction to the culture of the world. This refusal to be set apart. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. It means that you're not the same as everything else. But if you look the same, you do the same kind of things. Are you holy? In church, we need some holy people in this day and this age. Come on. This is the time if you can see it. We are in a war for the nation. We're in a war for the nation. The destiny of the nation is being decided in this hour. And there are voices that are arising to say, yes, this nation must follow God and must obey his commands. Why? Because we've been given a commission by our king to disciple the nations of the earth, to teach them to obey all of his commands. So my question to you, oh Christian, how's that going in your life? How are you teaching the nation to obey the commands of Jesus? How are you speaking against unrighteousness and standing for righteousness in your area of influence, in your area of authority? How are you speaking against dead religion? Hear me. I'm thankful for the, for the fellowships that are on the universities. But I tell you, look, I was, a, I was a college student at a fellowship once. And I'll tell you, man, I was so frustrated with my fellowship. Can't let me be blunt. I was InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. God bless them. Okay, but my chapter, I'm going to say I got frustrated with them all the time. I'm like, what kind of game are we playing here? Are we serious about this? This is an organization. You know what the history of InterVarsity is? It was birthed out of the student volunteer missions movement. Tens of thousands of college-age students gave up their lives to go full-time into the mission field. That's where InterVarsity came from. Where's that kind of faith today? That's our job to bring it. I know what it's like on your, on your fellowships. Challenge them lovingly. You don't have to be, you know... A mean Pharisee kind of challenge person, okay? But you can be a loving and serious challenge kind of person. Look, you could show grace to individuals while saying it's not okay for us to stay where we're at. It's not okay for us to have a culture that doesn't contend in fasting and prayer. I challenge you, fast more than me. I suck at fasting. I'm being blunt. I hate it every time we fast. I bet there are a bunch of you that, that can have a greater anointing for fasting than I can. You know what I would love? If you said, Pastor Dennis, we need to fast more. I would say, amen. <laughs> amen. And I would be like, oh, Lord, help me. Brothers, that's, that's what fellowship is. That's fellowship. Where we're challenging one another, inspiring one another to go hard after God, to live for the kingdom. And look, we're giving grace. Grace is important. You can't apply one standard of holiness to everybody. We just read about how God doesn't even do that. I'm not telling you to become a Pharisee. But I am telling you, oh, that we had a Christian community that, of true fellowship where everybody was challenging one another. That's leadership. 
Leadership isn't just supposed to be practiced by the authorities in the community. No, a healthy community one is where everyone is leading out of their own strengths and revelation. That's why I challenge you, make your small group there is the most holy small group there is. Make it the most evangelistic that there is. Make it the most prayer-filled. Whatever you have grace for, impart your grace to your community. That's your job. That's all of our jobs. And when you stumble, thank God that we have an intercessor in Jesus. Amen. Look, I'll tell you, Scripture does not say the righteous never stumble. It says even though they stumble seven times, they get back up. Right? You know how many times I've stumbled? Way more than seven. A multitude of stumbles. But I get back up. I lovingly challenge you today, church. If you've been stumbling, get back up. If you've been stumbling, get back up. Because we have a need for heroes to arise in this age. And I'm not talking about Christians who are, I don't know, nice. No, I'm talking about Christians that are anointed. Anointed. Oh, please, in Jesus' name, get anointed. Get anointed. How do you get anointed? God was speaking to me about this in worship. The picture that we're given in Scripture of the anointing. Do you know what anointing means? Anointing means to smear with oil. Doesn't sound as cool as anointing does, right? The anointed one, the smeared upon one. Very romantic. What does that mean? The idea is that there's these olives, right? And when they're crushed, there's an oil that's released from them. This picture is given to us. Why? Because we, we must be crushed. We must be crushed. Our old lives must be crushed. Let me tell you, it's not about the person who's most gifted or least gifted. That's not what this is about. It's the one who has allowed themselves to be crushed by God. It's the one who said, God, I've nowhere else to go. I must have you. It's the one who's been tested in hardship and responded, God, I have no idea what to do. And I feel like I'm failing all the time, but I must have you. It's the one who says, Lord, I have nothing else but you. You're the one that I want. My life is spent on you. This is where the anointing comes from. I lovingly challenge you, church. Get anointed. Our nation needs anointed Christians to arise in this age. And I say, church, that's you. That's you. Look, I pray in every church in America today that there are pastors that are challenging their members to give their lives wholly for the Lord and to arise into their destiny to disciple this nation. But I know for a fact that only a small percentage of churches are doing that. So what am I saying? I'm saying, church, there ain't many of us out there, relatively speaking. So it's on you. It's on you. It's not a question of if you can be disciplined enough. It's a question is of do you want it? That's always the issue. None of us can be disciplined enough. That's the way that the enemy treats us. He condemns us for not being disciplined enough and for stumbling. No, I tell you. That even the one who's, who's really following after God is going to stumble a lot. The question is, how do they respond to the stumbling? 
Do they allow themselves, when they stumble, to go to deeper humility? Hear me, some of you have stumbled, but the Lord says he's going to use what the enemy meant for harm and make it something great in your life if you'll allow him to take you into deeper humility in this season. Then you'll look back on this season of stumbling and you'll be like, God, thank you that you exposed my weakness. Thank you. This is part of the process. This is how you get there. You can't get there by passing every test. No, do you understand some of the tests? God knows you're going to fail. Sometimes God puts you in such a crazy test because he knows you're going to fail it. Why? So you can get some humility. So you can go, oh, shoot, I'm weaker than I thought I was. How many of you guys know humility, man, the most glorious virtue, humility, the hardest to get. Look, you can, you can choose humility, or if God's merciful, he just crushes you. You can fall on the rock, or the rock can fall on you. It's a lot less painful when you fall on the rock. When you willfully say, God, okay, I choose to humble myself. I will confess that I didn't call myself out yesterday, Lord. I'm telling you, that's the easy way to get more humility. The hard way is when you say no. Then you know what God has to do? He has to take you through a wilderness. Wilderness sucks. But how many of y'all know we need some wilderness seasons in our lives? We need those seasons where all of a sudden the grace evaporates and it feels like, God, where the heck are you? Then you realize how much of it was God in your life and not your own maturity. And you go, God, I'm so thankful for even the little bit of drops that you give me of grace. So precious are these drops, oh Lord. So precious, right? When I hear your voice, right? Even when it's the voice of conviction, how precious is that voice? Church, I tell you, come on. God wants to build you into a person that can withstand the persecution that's coming. I tell you this now because there's a danger arising in America. But it's time to stand. If we won't stand now, when exactly will we stand? I challenge you lovingly. Come on. Stand for faith. Stand for truth. Stand for his word. Stand for his commands. Be the voice in America saying that God's commands are good and true and right. That even his judgments are precious and valuable. More precious than gold. Sweeter than honey. For by them your servants are warned. Church, let's be that voice. Because the takeaway from Daniel is this. Daniel was not just a greatly skilled man. He was not just a very gifted man. That was not his true glory, even though those things were glorious. No, the most glorious thing about Daniel is that he was a faithful and courageous man. He was courageous. Next week, if we get there, we're going to study about how he was thrown into the lion's den. But we see again and again, riches and threats have no effect on Daniel. I'll give you all the, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel's like, take your rewards and shove it. That was his answer, essentially. Why? Because if you're swayed by the rewards of people, you'll also be swayed by their threats. If you're living for that promotion, if you're living for that, you know, passing grade, 
If that's what determines your barometer of success in your life, then you won't be able to follow God. Paul put it like this. Do I still fear man? If I did, I would not be a bondservant of Christ Jesus. No, he says, I'm a slave of Christ. It doesn't matter what I want anymore. All that matters is what he wants. Why do I tell you? Why do I give you the example of Paul and Daniel who are impossibly more mature than us? Because it gives us someone to emulate. It gives us the heart saying, God, make me like Daniel. God, make me like Paul. God, give us courage in this hour. We need courageous Christians in this hour. Man, I heard the testimony of Isabella Child, and I'll tell you what happened to me. I said, about time, about time that some Christians stood up and showed a little bit of courage. I would have wished that she voted no on that resolution. She says, no, this goes against God's law. And God's law is so much better than your trendy opinion. Your trendy opinion will be unpopular in 100 years. But God's law has been going for thousands of years, and it's still right and true. But she did a pretty good job. Still proud of her. I don't know her. Good job, Isabella. Oh, that God would put us through the same test. Oh, that God would bring this test, allow this test to come upon us at UC Irvine, to come upon us at UCLA, to come upon us at Cypress College. Oh, that we would be given the opportunity to show that our faith isn't just with words, but it's with actions. Why? Because if we want to break through the kingdom, judgment must come to the house of God first. We need a purifying of the church in America. We need those Christians who have no true faith. We need them to be exposed in Jesus' name. And I say this with fear and humility in my heart. I don't say this because I want Christians to fail. But I know this. The issues is that the church is so confused and divided. That's what keeps us from breaking out in power. And what has to happen is there must be a purifying of the bride. And we need those who have been calling themselves Christians but have no real part of Jesus. We need them to be exposed in this hour. And I say this lovingly, church. Let's not be in that number. Let's not be in that number. Let's throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Saying, God, give me a strong faith. Give me a mature faith in this hour. Lord, give me grace to stand in the time of testing. Because I tell you, for those who have passed through this test, there's going to be a great glory to come upon us. And that we're going to have a part in what God is doing in this generation. An unprecedented revival. 80 million saved. 200,000 sent out into the nations of the earth. This is what I'm dreaming for. This is what I'm living for, church. Come on. Entire nations that have been locked into great, great strongholds of deception. God is going to break them open. God's going to break open North Korea. God's going to break open Pakistan. You can't understand the, the type of persecution, the type of strongholds that are in these nations. We have it so good here, we don't understand what it's like there. God is going to break open these nations. And the kingdom of God is going to break forth. And many souls are going to be set free and many lives are going to be secured for eternity. I want to be part of his story. 
Worship team, come on up. Would you stand with me? Church, I know that sometimes I speak pretty hard words. I want to encourage you. Don't be condemned. The standards of God are always perfection. None of us can live up to perfection. Okay? When we're challenged with the calling to be perfect, which is what Jesus said, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All we need to do is be driven to greater humility and faith. God, I'm imperfect as I am, but Lord, you have the power to make me like Jesus. You have the power, God, to change my heart. You have the power to break off this stronghold. You have the power to give me the wisdom that I need. You have the power to give me the vision that I need to walk with you. This is how perfect, God's perfect standard is to challenge our hearts to greater humility and faith. Don't run away from the calling of God. Run to it in faith. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by the Spirit of God doing what is impossible for us to do in our own strength. None of us can change our own hearts. None of us can make ourselves like Jesus. No, throw that paradigm out of your head. No, it's by grace. And God graces the humble. He gives help to the humble-hearted. That's His promise. I hold on to that promise and say, God, catch me up in your story, God. I know that I don't have the ability right now. I don't have the discipline. I don't have the maturity. I don't have the wisdom. But God, you can do all things. You can transform me to be more like you. You can give me the courage to be a light to the nation. You can make my life part of your story of what you're doing in the earth. Church, let's make that our prayer today. Let's ask God to catch us up in his story. Let's say, God, here's my life. Have your way. Show me what your will is in this season. Give me the courage to obey. And if you know what God's calling you to do in this season of your life, brothers and sisters, do it. Do it. If I can just give you a jolt of courage, if you know what God is asking you to do in this season, blessed are you. Now the time for courage. Step into it and obey. Is he calling you to preach in public? Step into it and obey. Is he calling you to evangelism? Step into it and obey. Is he calling for you to repent and confess a sin? Step into it and obey. Is he calling you to love your heart? He's speaking to you, church. Come on around you. Step into it and obey. Whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, church. Come on. Now's the time to grow. Now's the time to get maturity in this hour. Let's cry out for the grace of God right now. Can we just lift our voices as the worship team plays? Let's just start to ask God, every single person, right now, just say, God, pour out your grace on my life. Let me arise in this season into destiny.